Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked right up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a pure, crisper water. And guess what they did? Smartwater. Vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. Welcome back to the Eater Upsell podcast from the Vox Media Podcast Network. My name is Daniel Janine. I'm a producer here. I'm joined by Eater's Editor-in-Chief, my co-host, Amanda Clute. Amanda Clute, how are you? I'm doing really well. How are you, Dan? Doing uh, doing so great today. <laughs> are you being honest? Yeah. <laughs> for you, sure. You hesitated for a minute. No, I. to be honest, what goes through my head is it's like I feel like we do this this intro and like no one gives a shit how we feel right now. Like, well, maybe if you're going through something, they want to hear about it. You feeling better? I know you had a cold last night. I had week. a little bit of a cold. I had three drink, three glasses of wine last night, and I had an early Whoa. spin class this morning. Whoa. So uh, I'm feeling simultaneously pretty charged and pretty drowsy. All right. All right. How are you feeling really? <laughs> oh, man. Tired? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like three weeks away from having a baby, so I'm just like... Is it three weeks away? Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit, because everyone always asks me like how... and I, I'm like, Everyone always asks you? I've been asked how, uh, like, how close you are to your due date. Yeah, yeah. Probably ten times mm-hmm. in total, and I always. You're always like, I don't know. No, I'm Ask like, her. I always say like seven to eight months. I didn't. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that was accurate for a while. For a while, yeah. Yeah. Or yeah, I, I was saying that like five months ago though. <laughs> <laughs> Just always go with seven months. It's you're like three a... weeks away. Three weeks away. Three weeks away, you're gonna have another child. Yeah. Wow, another mouth to feed. This is a good good way to tell the audience, get ready for three months of Dan. That's how we really feel. <laughs> yeah. We really feel amped for three months of Dan. Please email us at Upsell at Eater with suggestions of people that you think I should talk to during that period of time. It's going to be more interviews. Yeah, things are going to get weird. <sighs> okay. <laughs> Don't you think? Yeah, Isn't yeah. Is this I your mean... chance to like experiment? Yeah, I'm really going to experiment. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. Freed from the shackles of having a co-host. <laughs> yeah, the first episode is going to be like, some chef. <laughs> <laughs> Here's someone whose publicist emailed me yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty great. Well, yeah. I'm going to miss that sense of humor so much. Okay, anyway. Who so shits this... on their own podcast as much as we do? <laughs> True. We love anyway, it. today. So today on the show, we are talking to do two very special guests. Brent Young and Ben Turley, owners of the Meat Hook in Brooklyn. Owners and butchers. Owners and butchers. Yeah. Butchers in chief. (laughs) Butchers in chief. Of the Meat Hook. They are also the stars of our series Primetime, which is a show focused on meat and research and development around meat. Yeah, I spend a lot of time with them making the show, and I learned so much about the, the inner workings of a butcher shop, of a meat business, and how that relates to... Everything big and small, like I mean, even the economics of the shop. But as far as global warming and mm-hmm. uh, and environmental policy, so I find them fascinating. I thought we'd bring them in, talk to them about what goes on in the shop and what's going on in in the world of meat. Because mm-hmm. uh, if podcasting is anything like YouTube, people like meat and people like <laughs> Brent Young and Ben Turley. We'll find out. <laughs> yeah. As always, if you like the show, please remember to subscribe to it and. Toss it a, a rating um, and shoot us tell an email. Tell a friend. And tell a friend. Eater Upsell Woo. Meat Hook collaboration. Here we are. Here we start now. We are joined in the studio by Brent Young, Ben Turley, <laughs> yes. 
and some birds. <laughs> uh, we want to talk to you guys today about a couple things. I think I've spent a lot of time with you guys working on our YouTube show yep. slash Facebook, but some information today came out about Facebook inflating its numbers. So we're uh, no one is surprised. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. Wait, what? Facebook? Did something, something wrong? There's something questionable about Facebook? <laughs> huh. But anyway, I, I feel like over the time we spent together, I've picked up so many things that I was like, what? You know, that's so fascinating. So I think we want to trace some of those things. But it really starts with what is the, the meat hook? So the meat hook is a whole animal butcher shop in Williamsburg. We're off the Graham Avenue stop of the L train. Um, we specialize in uh, local meat, which means everything that we get comes from New York State um, or Pennsylvania. Our whole thing, I guess, <laughs> is uh, transparency in that where our meat has come from and availability is an ever-changing landscape and uh, like the conversation around where meat comes from and what you can get uh, changes all the time. So we just want to be 100% transparent with our customers about what you're getting when. So if you want, you know, a turkey for the 4th of July, we're going to tell you, A, that's a terrible idea, and it's going to be frozen. <laughs> Why are you from, doing that? Don't do that. From, <laughs> Who are you? Yeah. <laughs> you're not even uh, anywhere close to Canadian Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what, what you're eating, where it comes from, and why. And why? Why do that? Why do that? Yeah. Because there's no harder way to do it, Dan. <laughs> Why would we? We couldn't find a more difficult way to do it other than tying each other's hands uh, behind our backs. How did you get into it? We, um, why do it is, I mean, that's the the impetus of the whole thing was that. Oh, is this, a, can you do origin, friendship origin story though? Friendship you have to. You have to go. origin story. <laughs> we wow. didn't meet around the butcher's block, Amanda. We met around a pizza. Ooh. Yeah. Um, yeah, we actually met um, at a pizzeria in Richmond, Virginia. Woo! And, um, Great town. Big props. And a small little butcher shop opened uh, in Richmond, said that seems super cool, um, and wanted to get involved in it. And it was like a two-man operation. And uh, um, as soon as kind of started volunteering time there and interning, um, I was going to school. And it just be, it became a very interesting conversation and learning experience about how a butcher shop works. So we got our chops. Wow, <laughs> man. You Wow. Did you take your line? Yeah. I, um, I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> at the small shop, but it does box meat. And we were like, cool. Like, how, So how does this work? Like, all right, you need more New York strips. So you just like go to your purveyor list and you order another box of New York strips. And that's the way that like 90% of butcher shops work is just – it's box meat because that's the most economical way to do it because in that instance, you don't end up with extra pieces. Doing that is very it's, – it's fine, but it's very unfulfilling. And you're mm -hmm. like, cool, I mm -hmm. want to, like, cut meat. Like, I want to know, like, where does it – where does this muscle come from? And so we just wanted to, like, actually have a very transparent uh, conversation with our customers. Like, hey, this came from this farm. We cut it up. We cut it up. We sell it to you. Right. Like, that's it, based on availability. And that just didn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, so, it was like in 2007. Yeah. We were, we and were, the rest you mash in a sausage, right? Pretty much. Well, <laughs> Which was well, like, we, we will get to that. We, we will get we'll to sausage. We'll have a whole side yeah. thing I just sausage. I want to talk about box, box me for a second because – so is it possible to own a butcher shop that deals exclusively in box meat where you don't even need a knife? 
Like you do not, you can just order steaks and sell them as if they were t-shirts. Uh, yeah, you can you can get anything fabricated any way you want. Pretty much, it's going to be a little bit cheaper if you're doing a box beef like butcher operation to get the whole loin and then just cut it by hand. It also gives you some flexibility with customers who want like a specific cut. It's mm-hmm. not like it takes a lot of skill to measure out an inch and a half versus versus two inches, but you can. They're, the slaughterhouses and the meat companies are more than happy to charge you to do all the fabrication. Like they'll charge you for whatever you want to be charged for. And so, what comes into your shop when you say whole animal? It's like the whole. I mean, the whole animal. Yeah. I mean, we don't get the head because, come on, ew, gross. But <laughs> other than that, like, yeah, we get the, we get it from the from the rear ankle up to the front hoof, and we get the whole thing, and then we break it down from there. Which I think is part of part of our transparency is like we break it in front of the customers. You come in and you see it hanging there, and you can ask for whatever cut, and you mm-hmm. know it's available because you're seeing it happen in front of your eyes. And if it's not available, if it's not available, then the come good thing about back next week, <laughs> no. Uh. <laughs> if it's not available, the good thing about being whole animal is you have you're not just like ordering more New York strips or whatever you. Uh, you have plenty of other options that kind of relate to that muscle or set next to it or have a similar texture or flavor. And at this point, we have a pretty amazing crew of butchers and cooks um, who can always, like, if you wanted a New York strip but we don't have that, we have, like, something that you might like more and it might be even cheaper. Right. The the, the approach, I mean, that, that's, like, the whole, our whole interest is the conversation that you're going to have with the customer is less, like, what are you looking for? It's like, you know, what way do you want to cook? Are you going to grill? Are you going to braise? How many people are you cooking for? Because we can make a better suggestion on something that you might have not come in to actually purchase, but we're like, cool, check this out. This is a better bang for your buck and a little bit more fun to cook. And mm-hmm. you're like, oh, cool. That's fun. I just learned something and I get to go eat something delicious. Like that, it doesn't get much better than that. So, and that's completely unautomated. Like mm-hmm. you need to talk to another human being to do that, which is not the easiest thing to do, but is the most fun thing to do and the way that, you know, we want to run a business. And you were saying that the the butchers that you buy from will charge you to fabricate whatever. Does that mean you save money by doing it this way or are your costs higher? Oh, no, our costs are astronomically higher. Um, We're – when Brent mentioned local meat, we also – everything is grass-fed, grass-finished, which a lot of people say grass-fed and then – leave off the grass finish because they're actually like then putting them on a, in a barn for four months to load mm-hmm. them up on grain. We do grass-fed, grass-finished. So they're like born on pasture, live on that pasture their entire lives. So they're very expensive to raise. They're also raised about three times longer than your average animal. Um, and we're paying for all of that, uh, that good work and uh, hard work that our farmers do. And then we have to pay for extremely skilled labor to be able to break down everything and then you know, if we're doing ground beef, we're grinding it once or twice a day, so it's very fresh. All the steaks have to be kept uh, very pristine. So it takes it takes a lot of people. We could probably, if we were doing like a box beef operation, I think we have 20 people working at the butcher shop, and we could probably cut that down to about seven people if we Does just Does this extend to all the animals or just the beef? Beef, like, beef, is there some, beef, pork, some, lamb. Like, duck deal to be had at your place? <laughs> There's a duck deal? <laughs> yeah. Like, is there, like, what's the, what's the secret affordable thing to buy 
chicken. A whole, a whole chicken. chicken. Buy a whole chicken. Yeah, it's the best thing yeah. that you can feed your family for several mm-hmm. days. Even though you, you break everything into steaks, you still can't make money on just the steaks, right? Like, it. talk about the ground. Like, that's the first thing that you guys would tell me that I was blown right. away by, how it all comes down to sausage, really. Just just as rough, rough ratios, percentages, like, um, you know, most of the beef that we get is about seven to 800 pounds. Call it a thousand because sometimes it's over, you know, a thousand pounds. About half of that is bone. So, like, you can use that and thank God for the bone broth trend. Mm. Like, that's been a real lifesaver for us in the past couple years mm-hmm. um, where we're actually selling all of our bones. But come June, July, Do you August. you sell it to um, bone broth operations or you sell it to your customers to our customers oh, wow. people come in and like want so there's, there's enough a, there's, demand there there's to a lot of people that, that come in and just ask for 10 pounds of beef bones wow which is like a big stinky project to, to do but we also make it ourselves people are so intense so yeah they oh are, and you can awesome. just sell you yeah can so sell we, the broth. yeah exactly so we, we do both um about half of every animal is bones and then half of the usable meat is ground so wow. we like, we have a restaurant in Three's Brewery down in Gowanus um, where, fortunately, we sell, you know, cheeseburgers to a bunch of people drinking beers, like, easy sell. But we, we've had to pick up, you know, restaurant accounts so that we can actually use all of our ground beef. But, our you know, our ground beef, even wholesale to restaurants, is twice as expensive as any other, you know, commodity that you would get in, in the city. So, it, it, you know, it has to be a conscious choice to go with this product because we believe, you know, it is a better product. And that, I mean, that's a good way to even further think about it if you want to get into the minutia of like how ex- like expensive things can get is say you buy, say you buy a whole beef and it's four fifty a pound. And so you take out that 50% bone weight and all of a sudden your meat is now $9 a pound that you paid up front before you've even had like anyone touch it that because of their skill level, they, they should make a good amount of money. Like They are experts in their craft, and this is like a pretty niche market. So you want to make sure people are well taken care of in that regard. And then all of a sudden, that $9 raw piece is like you have to turn up. What, what did you say the percentage was on ground beef? Was it 60%, 50%? 50, yeah. So then you have, have that at 50%, and you're pretty much like if you're selling ground beef at $9 a pound, you're already losing money because of the amount of time it took to like get down to that ground, and then you have to make up for that on the steak side. And so, like when you get to like fillet is the easiest example because a whole fillet is you know two to three pounds. They're you know they're pretty small. So you're like, cool, that's thirty dollars a pound. That sounds really expensive. And a big one's you know th- three pounds. You're like, oh, it's ninety bucks mm-hmm. for like that's like what we would make off of, you know, and there's two, there's only two of them. So it's $180 off of, you know, what it costs to purchase this whole animal, do the math, you know, a whole beef is 2,500 to $3,000. Like, all right, your most quote unquote, most expensive cut of the filet gets you $180. Like, right. All right. Got a lot more to sell. (laughs) Basically a lesson being that you, we, you don't make a lot of money in this business. The meat business, <laughs> the meat business is not where you go to like make a make a dime. 
It was really funny learning about these things because I feel like I first heard about the meat hook through sausage. Mm-hmm. So sausage is obviously a huge part of this, right? Yeah. Was it a conscious when you when you opened it up? Did you have this? Did you know that like we have to make our sausages cool in order for this to work? Because like sausage could easily be this thing that's just a throwaway. Well, when we when we initially met like back back in Virginia and like. When we were just getting boxed beef in, the only, like, creative outlet we both had coming from kitchens was to make sausages. Hmm. Um, And we had a really, really great mentor there who um, had spent time in Italy studying how to make sausage and do charcuterie. Chris Matera, what up? Yep. Nice guy. And he kind of showed us the ropes. And then when he would, like, go out of town on vacation or something, and it's just, like, Brent and I in the shop— we want to fuck around. <laughs> yeah. We want to, like, come up with, like, uh, he's, like, a very traditional guy. And we're, like, we want to make the trashiest thing we can possibly <laughs> make while, yeah, yeah. while Chris is away <laughs> and see how it sells. So he has to let us keep making it. it was kind of, like, a fun, creative endeavor for us. So by the time we opened the butcher shop here, which we moved to New York because literally there was nowhere else in the country in 2008, 2009 that was doing whole animals. Um, it was just starting to pick up, like, be, like, rumors here and there of it happening in New York. Um, that was, like, immediately that was, like, the thing we had to do to just keep our brains, like, working. Like, I think overtime and, like, feeling like a, our sense of accomplishment was, like, greater than just opening the shop. Because, I mean, Brent and I, when we opened the shop, we were our own. There were no other people that worked there. Um it was we had it was the two of us and we had one other partner and we were our own porters. This is we, when you were inside Brooklyn Kitchen. Yeah, yeah, we were all working fourteen-hour days, so the only way to feel like we had some sort of creative outlet was to make sausage. So we immediately just started like cranking out recipes left and right, left and right, and we found out like that's what people really liked from mm-hmm. us because it was something different. Mm-hmm. Also, we never we never really considered the way that people would shop in New York City, and sausage became like the easiest thing for people to pop in, grab two sausages, you're like, cool, that was eight bucks, you grab, you know, Right, it's your everyday thing. Exactly, you can go home and make pasta, and you have a full, well-rounded meal that didn't cost a lot of money for your, you know, tiny, and and actually cook it in Mm -hmm. your tiny apartment without, you know, trying to cook a big steak, smoking out your place, like, everyone can understand sausage, so coming up with different recipes became fun and people like really loved it. So they're like, oh man, you made a banh mi sausage? Cool. Like I want to try that. So they'd always try our new recipes. So a lot of people talk about how difficult it is to find skilled workers in New York right now. Uh, From what you're saying, it sounds like you need workers that are even more skilled. Um, not, not when we hire them. So yeah, um, what, how do you, how do you do it? It's actually best for us to find someone who is just like, has a rock solid work ethic and is willing to learn. Um, a lot of places cut differently. We cut a specific way and like to teach someone from scratch is a lot easier than re-educating someone from like a previous oh, system. We, I mean, w- like to use Sam as an example, we just acquired a sous chef from Del Posto. And uh, that dude is humble as fuck right now because <laughs> he is a great cook, um, but he straight up knows, like, he's got a great work ethic, but he knows, like, I don't know anything about this. So training somebody to do it, you know, is a rewarding experience, but it takes it takes years to actually get to know 
and mm-hmm. it takes a lot of time with the customer because that's the way that we want to run a shop is not just like, you know, you just cut meat and you don't talk to customers. Like we want customers to have an experience with somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. And they're the person that makes the sausage. They're the person that has actually touched, you know, these these steaks. And they can say, this one's great. You're going to be mm-hmm. really, really happy about it. And knows how to cook, you know, beef shank versus brisket. Like, how does that cook differently? It takes a lot of time and experience and, uh, you know, um, successful and failed dishes, you know, cooking at home or right. cooking staff meal in order to learn that stuff. I think, I think that's that's the biggest thing. It's just there's not a lot of skilled labor that know how to break down whole animals. So you kind of have to find the people with humility and a really good work ethic and like just build them, build them up to be part of the team with us. Yeah, they, they make really, really great employees. And we've, you know, we've been in business almost nine years now and it's take it took us the better part of eight years to to get there um we've had a ton of really great people come through the shop but right now i mean honestly it's like a luxury for ben and i to be sitting here recording a conversation in the middle of the day (laughs) and uh, you know not not actually Cutting meat, it's yeah, pretty freaking not making cool. sausage or working the register. So <laughs> sorry, sorry guys, <laughs> sorry not there, but uh, thank you so much. How long does it take you to to be comfortable with someone's skill set? Can you get someone there up in a couple months? You can get, I would say, like six months is normally like a good place. I like to make sure that uh, everybody knows that I'll never trust them. <laughs> okay. um, so. Um, and that's like, the difference in our personalities in a nutshell. <laughs> six it'll, months, it'll, never. It'll take a lifetime. But that's a huge investment, right? So you invest six months or infinity uh, in someone. <laughs> How do you keep them around? Like it seems, it seems so scary that you would really invest time in these people, and then after eight months or whatever, they would just walk. Um, the good thing is with meat cutting is like you never can you can keep learning as long as you keep being invested in it. Like there's no ceiling to how much you can know. Yeah. Like Brent and I are still like reading books all the time trying to learn more. Right. And it's, I mean, it's why we go on farm trips and encourage everyone that, you know, works for us to um, be actively involved with the farmers because the mm-hmm. more you know, like you, the the more difficult it becomes to actually walk away because you're just like, shit, man, like I can't, I can't just go cook on a line now. Mm-hmm. Like being a line cook's awesome and it's a really fun rewarding job but like i think that's what drew both ben and i to butchering was like we love cooking but this is so much of a bigger right. experience and conversation and feel like something that you can actually be invested in that if you're you know you work for a local butcher shop you can be invested in a local economy both farm wise and neighborhood wise so that you're actually part of a neighborhood. It seems like it's kind of the answer to the bad business decision, right? It's like you really, truly invest in a thing, and it may not be good for the bottom line initially, but it, it is what helps keep staff invested in a in an idea. Yeah. You make it about the, the group. Like, we're all invested in this thing and, like, educating our customers and being part of a food system we all believe in. Like, it's easier to get people to stick around if they actually believe in what you're trying to do. Every week, the Eater Upsell helps you digest the latest hot topics in the world of food. Coming up next, hear an advertiser segment from Betterment about an easier way to digest life-changing financial advice. 
Do you know the emotion most often associated with money? Anxiety. <laughs> Anxiety, right? We've all felt that. But where does it come from? There's kind of a couple of different components to it. Some of them are really practical and they're valid, right? Like money is the ability to buy things that you need. We have other components of anxiety about money, which are more about just the social and psychological components of it. You can see other people spending money, but not other people saving money. That's Dan Egan. He's the director of behavioral finance and investing with Betterment, an online financial advisor that reduces investment anxieties by helping clients set and meet goals. When you sign up to Betterment, we're going to ask you a lot of questions that are just practically useful. You know, like, are you married? Where do you live? How much money do you make? Because that influences what are the best account types to use? What kind of tax breaks can you use? How much do you need to be saving and over what period of time? According to Egan, the results of this can be summed up in one word. Uh, elation. When you have that sense of accomplishment of having hiked up a very large mountain and gotten to the top and you can see for miles, it really pays off a lot more than you expect and those kind of memories stick with you for longer. Betterment. Outsmart average. Please remember investing involves risk. This has been advertiser content from Betterment. Thanks for that note from Betterment. To learn more about their tools, visit betterment.com slash eater. This episode is brought to you by Sonos. Sonos makes it easy to create your perfect home sound system with speakers for every room and listening experience. Upgrade all your entertainment with Sonos Beam, smart, compact soundbar for your TV, and enjoy brilliantly clear sound for shows, music, movies, radio, and more. Amazon Alexa is even built right in for simple voice control. Take listening to the next level when you connect Sonos speakers around your home. They all work together. Need help in the kitchen? Get it with Sonos One and Alexa. The smart speaker is compact enough for your countertop so you can ask Alexa for the next step in your recipe or get inspired with a cooking playlist. Sonos works with all your favorite streaming services and even AirPlay, so you're free to listen to what you want, where you want, however you want. Go to Sonos.com to start your home sound system today with Sonos One and the all-new Sonos theme. You've recently uh, launched into a sausage wholesale business where you're selling it to different purveyors. Mm -hmm. um, is this to, to use up ground that you guys still have and that you need to sell in order to... No, this is a completely different project. And for us, it's kind of... I don't know if you want us to go big idea or like more technical on this, but the big idea is like... I decided a bunch of stuff last week. Amanda, what do you think? Big idea. Big yeah, idea. Big idea. This is where we get into uh, like hot take town. Yeah, let's um, do it. Agriculture in this country is a fucking abomination. And uh, the meat business writ large is like the most shisty business you can imagine. It's like it's pretty, pretty bad out there. As far as transparency or as far as where everything comes from, where its impact on like climate change, mm -hmm. if you choose to believe in such facts. <laughs> We're undecided on the upsell. <laughs> <You're> on, <yeah. laughs> okay. Officially, officially undecided. But the big idea is essentially there's this thing called that's like picking up steam um, called regenerative agriculture, which is kind of looking at agriculture not as a problem, but starting to look at it as a solution. And how do we get soil to actually like work for us for climate change rather than against us? So the idea of both the sausage project is. We love our recipes. We've essentially had nine years now of the butcher shop of like market research of which sausages do people like. And we wanted to start working large scale on where we think agriculture should go and is going to go. And so the the sausage company is like our first 
real cannonball into that. Uh, where we're working with our main pork farm, uh, Gibson Family Farm, it's about three hours north of here, and we're using rotational pasture techniques and a bunch of other technical boring stuff that I can see Dan's eyes closing as I'm speaking no about way. it. No um, way. But essentially, we're we're using the whole animal to make a sausage that has a net positive, hopefully, um, moving forward, net positive impact on the environment and is something that like we can all feel good about like eating and we can also be as transparent as we have been historically. Can you talk about more about why it's a net positive? Uh, because of the of... What, what's called carbon capture in the soil based on rotational pasture practices. So you essentially start with like your chickens and then you move like your lamb and then your pigs can clear out some like uh, some trees and then eventually you have beef. And the what the, one of the things is you obviously cut out pesticides and fertilizers and you're using uh, just this rotation and then the break that you give the ground to actually build up soil health. And what you get with that is obviously a healthier environment. And when you have that, you actually get soil that doesn't leach out its carbon, but it will actually attract about a third more carbon Mm. and actually pull in more carbon into the ground than it lets go. And that's what we're trying to do. The way, the way that like, you know, these farms work is that they are small ecosystems. So having the animals, you know, like lamb and beef prefer different grasses. So like if they follow one another, they'll treat a field completely differently. But like hmm. what, you know, an animal eats, sorry, but an animal shits as mm-hmm. well. So, and that's like the best fertilizer in the world. But if you pump an animal full of antibiotics, like that's going to end up in your waterway. But if you don't and you have pasture management, like the microbes, um, in the soil and uh, like the insects that kind of take care of these animals all work together to create a healthier environment, which creates a actual better topsoil and like a better root system. So whenever you have like huge storms that, you know, dump a ton of water onto your land, your land can actually absorb the water rather than yeah. having the flash floods. Exactly. So it's like, you know, it sounds it sounds really cheesy, but mm-hmm. it is like literally, you know, saving the earth itself. Does it mitigate the carbon coming from the animals themselves? I think a good way of thinking about it is that, and I heard about this at a um, a talk last year, is that like the largest environmental problem is industrial beef, mm-hmm. but all of the studies are showing that if beef is raised mm-hmm. outside in a rotational pasture, like in, in order to have the amount of land that you have, like all of that spread out. So you just need to like non-industrialize the system. It, it really does take care of itself and you don't have huge manure pools that cause, you know, um, what's it called? Manure pools. going to um they cause the manure pools that put methane into the air and that's like why there's a huge methane problem so like non-industrial systems are actually pretty good for the environment and part of it is convincing people to buy into this and pay more for their meat are you seeing that i mean i'm sure in brooklyn you see it but if you want to be a national brand that's, Do you think that's going to be a challenge for you guys? Yeah, I think it is going to be a challenge yeah. for us if we're, if we're honest. Yeah, um, but I think we're 
we're trying to build our company differently and we're trying to build the narrative with it and we're trying to build we're trying to build a company that we think five or ten years from now people are really going to want to latch on to by creating like video content so you can like virtually visit the farms which is something you know agriculture tends to be about 20 years behind the times mm -hmm. so we want to be very forward thinking so that if well, you, they often don't want to show their farms exactly um so we want to be as honest and upfront about our practices um and hopefully show that. And hopefully that will create the incentive for moms and dads that are shopping for their kids to be like, this is actually worth it. I don't want this other stuff in our diet. Um, so we're really attacking it mm -hmm. from every angle that we possibly can to show like, this is where we need to be going. And we, we want right. to be leaders in that way. And we are priced competitively with Whole Foods. Mm -hmm. Like most of the time we're Oh, toe -to -toe. From, the, from the butcher shop, yeah, yeah, sometimes even less expensive than. So if you pay attention to the to the labels and the prices associated with, um, you know, all of their quote unquote grass fed products are actually more expensive than anything that we have. Right, and people yeah. are feeling more comfortable buying from Whole Foods over Walmart or whatever. Yeah, exactly. God, you guys want to go deep on carbon capture? <laughs> <more? What? laughs> Let's talk about it. I mean, my my suburban mom is now part of a meat CSA, which I feel like that's so cool. Is a big signal that people not that she wasn't hip to all this stuff it's just that someone who was buying grocery store beef my whole life is now all of a sudden like wait a minute this is bad i'm going to buy directly from this farm i'm going to pay like way more just to have this good stuff can i can i hear you with an anecdote yeah so um i don't know if you've looked around but people are really mad at each other a lot these <laughs> days um <laughs> But we were talking to one of our farmers, and he was telling us the story of, you know, he raises grass-fed beef. That's just, like, what he does. It's part of his, like, rotational program. Um, sells a couple to us, but um, not too much. But he has, uh, he has two daughters, and they're friends with the kids, like, down the street. And uh, so they have all the kids over, and they're, like, having a barbecue, and they make, they make their own burgers from their own meat. And they put the burgers on. It's like, hey, try try our burgers. So it's like, this is our like grass-fed, grass-finished burger. And is the parents who are also farmers for conventional farmers are like, I'm not going to eat that. Like, it's like so deep rooted now. It's like hmm. they like traditional commodity farmers see like grass-fed as like a threat wow. to their way. So things like a meat CSA happening in like the suburbs is like an insane cultural shift. Mm -hmm. It's a really really big one. Like. I didn't even know that you could do that. Where do you think that this change is coming from? Is it from people who are environmentally conscious or is it like the paleo CrossFit bros? I think it's like all, all of it, honestly. It's just been a good change. People actually care about where their food comes from. And uh, I think it's like as simple as, you know, eating the difference between, you know, a really great apple and a really shitty apple. You're like, man, this really great apple is great. Where did it come from? And like tasting that in vegetables, you know, I think people are just a lot more aware now of what what they're eating and uh, like making a conscious choice about what they're what they're doing. I think the the trends have definitely helped, and we you know want to support them because we love selling bones. <laughs> but um, I just think in in general more more conscious consumer. Yeah. I think there's more information out there now than there ever has been. So people can actually like know what the food system at large looks like. And then they can kind of then find any sub sort of like mm -hmm. subculture of like 
meter agriculture that they want to be a part of around them, which right. is becoming easier, which is really cool. Is it, and it's something it's something that we've always been invested in, but always have been very, very cautious of um, proclaiming because the like if you want to convince somebody of your argument, the last thing you want to do is yell at them. And felt we felt like when we w- when we opened the shop in two thousand nine, like all of the Brooklyn food scene was very boutique. So we didn't want to come across as boutique or soapboxy. We just wanted to be a local butcher shop with the best stuff around. And it just happens to be high quality and 100% grass fed and grass finished. So now that people are asking questions and catching up to the conversation, it's a nice thing to say, oh, we've been working with these farms for 10 years. What what do you think of when, when you guys go out to eat in New York, the way that quote unquote like fancy meat is branded is always striking to me. Like what is it like for you looking at menus across the city? Uh, that's a pretty wide scale that you're putting us on. So I don't know if I want to say like, like if it's from like, if they're like, it's from a butcher, this butcher shop. Okay. I might be interested. Um, if it's like from this farm, which like literally means nothing. Like Creekstone is like Creek, Creekstone is like is the it's biggest always one. Creekstone. It's yeah, like, that's from Creekstone showing farm. up like ten years ago. Yeah, it's exactly. Really weird. It's like yeah. great, great marketing. Uh, total bullshit. And yeah, it makes me mad when I see it on a menu. Doesn't mean anything. It's it's, it's like such bullshit. Yeah, here's a huge great commodity farm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. With yeah. a with a really organic sounding <laughs> yeah, name. Sweet uh-huh. Yeah, name. all they all they did was like put a name on it to like kind of throw you for a world that it's not commodity when it's that's all it is. It's the same bullshit. Just actually has a name now. Yeah. I can go off on this for a while. That shit, makes me, <laughs> that shit makes me furious. Like no, I, it's crazy. I mean, like, the uh, that, I can't think of, other than that Dirt article in the Times, like, the last thing that was about beef was Creekstone, because they have their own slaughterhouse, which is which was Temple Grandin approved, which, like, that's, like, the whole story. It's, like, mm. it a, it's a semi-humane slaughterhouse. Okay, cool. But it did nothing about the beef. It was nothing like, to do with diet, raising yeah, practices, housing right. practices. Like another marketing campaign. It's like this yeah. very it's like for this ten minutes of their lives, it's Temple Grandin approved. The rest of it is like Yeah. The same shit. The same shit that you like see videos of and you're like, that's disgusting. Yeah. Creekstone sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> so what about when you see like these uh, I mean I'm going to use Palafreda because it's it's New York. But what about when yeah. you see these Palafreda custom burger blends and stuff? Is that's just marketing? It's all bullshit. What's uh, short answer? Yeah, um, it's a nice way to make an extra buck on something that like doesn't really taste that different. Like we we get customers in our shop that are always like, "Oh, I want like short rib and brisket," and it's like, "Dude, that burger is going to cost you thirty dollars now for us to like custom grind all this stuff." Right. So yeah, somebody's like, "Can you throw some skirt steak in that in that grind?" It's like, "Dude, that's a." $20 a pound steak that you're throwing in the grind that's not going to change. So like, yeah. having that on a restaurant menu is like, just think of how many skirt steaks that are actually being sold on restaurant menus as a delicious steak. And then there's <laughs> even more, like this system is so big that there's more that you're just fucking grinding. Like, gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and when it matters a lot more that you have the right amount of like fat to meat ratio, fat to lean ratio, then it does like that this specific fat is in there versus that specific fat. Like I think it's much more important where the lean is coming from. Um, like if your lean's all coming from like filet, it's gonna talk like taste a lot 
worse than if your lean comes from like the neck and the shoulder where it normally does. Uh, that's where all the tough muscles, like hardworking muscles are. So you're going to get good flavor out of those. But as long as you have like what I think a good burger is, is 70% lean, 30% fat. Um, most places it's 80, 20, um, but a little bit more fat and you have a better burger and use the hardworking working muscles that are meant for grind. But save your money, spend it on a nice bottle of wine. But what makes a good grind is a good animal. Yeah. And uh, like, yeah, get your get your fat content up, but like a great, a, a, a lean, grass-fed, grass-finished animal still tastes 100% better to me than, you know, any grain-fed ground beef. Well, I mean, so it, just doesn't, it just doesn't taste like anything. Yeah, I think that's a, I mean, that's a really good point. I think with burgers, like if you're working within the commodity market, which makes up like 85% of the overall market, all they're doing is build, they're building in ways to kill variables. So everything just tastes the fucking same anyway. Like it doesn't matter like where your muscle comes from. It's all, it's all the same bullshit. So yeah, I don't, I, I think when people tell me like their favorite burgers from this place or this place, I mostly take that to mean like you like the way that burger is like dressed or you like the bun or something like that. It's less Great like sauce, lots of cheese. Or yeah, yeah. Good room. And yeah, it, and that, yeah. And that's fine. Like I'm like my one of my favorite burgers in the world is like JG Melon, which is like not special meat, but I just like love the bun it's, and I love the awesome. way it's done. It's a really fun place. Yeah. So yeah. it's not. It doesn't invalidate anyone's like favorite burger. It's just like that burger tastes the same as every other burger. You just like the environment of a place. You like the wait staff, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. all these other things, and it's. It's not has nothing to do with the meat. I just totally feel for you guys because now fully understanding these things and knowing that you have given so much to it and care so deeply about it, hearing somebody come and be like, I love the steak from this place and you just know it's full of shit. They have a bad operation. They are bad for the world. It just it must be very challenging to smile and nod as kindly as you as you two are. It is sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, yeah. It depends. It depends where it is. Especially when you're like out with family and they're like, "Try this steak," and you're like, "Mm, (laughs) "That's really great." (laughs) But JG Mellon is a great example. It's like it doesn't get any cooler than hanging out there. Like so, Mm -hmm. uh, like it doesn't mean that every single thing that you eat has to be, you know, the most organic thing out there. But like our point is, think about it. Like, think about it and make conscious choices. Like, but back to the ground beef, like, that's, it's our strongest conversion tool because I feel like every time somebody comes in and they're like, man, like, this stuff's expensive. You're like, dude, here's a pound of ground beef. Take it home. Make a couple burgers. And if they're not the best burgers you've ever had, like, I don't even have to give you your money back. You never have to come back. But come back and tell me tell me about it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And every single time we've done that, that's how we've gotten all of our best customers. Like, they come back and they try new things and they're like, holy shit, that was a great burger. And you're like, yeah, man, that's a real animal. Like, it came from real beef and that's what beef should taste like. And you convert people. So, you know, there's a time and a place for different experiences, but we're, we're selling a very specific experience. What's goals five years from now? A sausage in every home. <laughs> we were actually just starting to, we were actually talking about this yesterday that we really need to like buckle down to figure out what that plan is. Like, I don't, we keep like somewhat flirting with like another shop, but then when we realistic think, realistically think about it, we're like, oh, Jesus Christ, no. Don't yeah, it's, not it's, do that. yeah, it's taken us so long just to get this established and yeah. feel really, really good about it. Um, 
and it's such a great environment that recreating that uh, sounds really difficult. But um, the wholesale sausage, I think, is is step one into making a larger pasture-based um, meat company so that we can make more things available to more people because we, you know, right now the only place you can buy this stuff is our butcher shop. And then we have the sausage company mm-hmm. that's slowly getting sausages out there, and it's still like just available in Brooklyn and Manhattan. That's not a very large reach, um, but it's step by step getting getting it out there and getting other people involved to actually be interested in in better meat. I mean, the with the sausage co, like I don't think we're there in five years, but hopefully there in ten or twenty is to like start a farm network nationwide that are really invested in pastured programs that are switching over from commodity farmhouses and knocking them down and like starting to work with the land a little bit better. Um, and we can actually build a different kind of company would be, is the idea to be at the forefront of that. Right. Cause so I think even to just throw this way back to the beginning of the conversation, um, a whole animal butcher shop buys whole animals, which means we need to be zero waste in order to actually make any money. So that means we need, you know, charcuterie skills in order to make value-added products out of all of the bits and pieces that you can't sell as steaks or pork chops or bacon or whatnot. So that's where the whole, like, sausage thing came mm-hmm. from. It's like, all right, we always got to sell more pork. So, like, that's the business that we know how to run is, like – the value added things and um, making great products out of the 10 to 20 percent waste of an animal. So like running a, a larger company, like we don't just want to sell steaks, like we want to sell all of the other stuff that we've learned how to make. We make great beef jerky. We make great jerky sticks that use all of our beef and pork hearts. Whoa, you wouldn't know that from the first time you tried a jerky stick, but it's like the best Slim Jim you've ever had, but it uses all of our offal. So it's actually kind of good for you. Like, oh, shit, that's cool. So being able to expand in that way where we can do all of these things and, you know, show off all of the things that we've learned in in these 10 years on a larger scale is definitely, I think, the dream. Any embarrassing dance stories you guys want to share about? meeting me or oh definitely there was the one uh where in the basement where the... you accidentally found when you found out that you had erased uh the first part of the interview with G- uh Gian- G- what's her name giada giada yeah yeah you had erased uh amanda's intro and oh. then you you look like you were literally going to jump off of a fucking building <laughs> yeah you like it was amazing to see the other people on the on the crew just be like I've never, I've never seen Dan like this before. Also, seeing Dan on a farm was uh, <laughs> <laughs> real shocker. Why? I think you, you can. No, it was so I mean, you, you, yeah, you really. I mean, you really um, meld well in anywhere in New York. But wow, put you on a farm and just a sore thumb out there. <laughs> Man, what if that fish is out of water. <laughs> yeah. What? I think I'm pretty good in all environments, specifically bad on farms, eh? Yeah. Remember remember when you were trying to leave the farm just to go to a spa? <laughs> I called an Uber. <laughs> <laughs> what? 20 minutes for an Uber out here? You People underestimate me. the range of Ubers. <laughs> <laughs> Part two of our conversation. I also don't think 
where I was leaving has any bearing on how I handled myself on the farm. No, it was just a vis. It was a visible like. I wasn't like trying to plug my phone in in the middle of the grass. <laughs> <laughs> Not far off. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for coming on. Appreciate your time, and uh, I hope no one's made any bad cuts back at the shop. Probably not. I hope we haven't embarrassed ourselves too much, and I hope we were par for the course. No, I'm hoping that you wanted us to just talk about like farm ethics for like a really long time, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's 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 interesting content for people. That's what we wanted. Yeah, Yeah, great. Thank you so much for listening to the Eater Upsell to the show today. We hope you had a blast. Eat more sausage. Eat more sausage. Go to Whole Animal Butcher Shops and make mm-hmm. sure to check out Primetime on youtube.com slash eater if you want to see more of the guys. And for more of us, stay right here because this is where we live. It's <laughs> true. <laughs> um, and check us out next week for something that we have not yet food decided. Stories. Oh, food stories. Food stories. Everyone's favorite. Everyone's favorite. The news today seems really grim, and it sometimes focuses more on problems than on solutions. I'm Dylan Matthews, the host of Future Perfect, a show about possible solutions. Solutions that are a little weird and a little wild, but worth considering. What will people say if I treat this person who murdered someone's loved one kindly? Simply tell the Border Patrol to take the day off. Tell them to take the year off. Listen to Future Perfect every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.